0: Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's episode. God bless you, and thank you for tuning in. Today we are in the book of Revelation, and we are continuing to make a little progress in Revelation chapter 12 as we discuss some of these difficult topics, some of these deeper topics in this book. So let's begin today by reading Revelation chapter 12. And I'm going to reread some verses that we've read, but we're going to move a little bit farther as well. So we will read today in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. We're going to stop there for today and discuss these verses in some detail, picking up from where we left off in the last episode. Now, if you'll remember, in the last episode, we discussed the war in heaven. We discussed the fact that this time when there is war, when the enemy tries to fight, when the devil and his demons try to fight against Michael and the heavenly angels, they do not prevail. And not only that, there is now no place left for them anymore. They cannot come before God ever again into the heavenly realm to even accuse the brethren. There's no longer any place for them. Their access now is completely denied. So now we want to read of two different responses to this, to this fact that Satan and his demons can no longer continue their prior work, at least before God, in accusing brethren. So let's look at these two different responses. First, let's talk about the response of those that are in heaven. And let's discuss how they speak about the people, the saints that are alive at this time on the earth when Satan's access is denied. Now, verse 11 is an absolutely wonderful verse, and it does have application to every single believer. Every single Christian can draw application from verse 11 here of chapter 12. That's very powerful. The word of God, even within its very contextual meaning and understanding, still is very multi-applicational. In other words, we can draw application and lessons that we can learn from it even when we are discussing it in light of its actual context. So this verse talks about how people of God overcome the devil. And in its context here, it's really talking about those tribulation saints, we might call them, those who were overcomers in this time when the devil has tried to accuse and accuse and accuse Notice in the reading that the voices in heaven use the pronouns they and them, meaning that those that are in heaven have now found the complete victory over their their struggles with the devil. But now they're speaking of those who were alive on the earth at that time that are still overcoming the devil. And notice what it tells us here about the overcomer. Notice that this is also speaking about an overcomer in the time of the tribulation, because at this point in the chronology, even though this is a narrative section of Revelation, it fits within the chronology here of the midpoint of the tribulation. There's several reasons for that. We've discussed a few of those already. We'll discuss a few more later. But even in the tribulation, remnant believers, or what we might call tribulation saints, those who will come to faith in Jesus Christ after the church is gone in the rapture and during this time that we have had now between the first seal opening and the seventh trumpet now sounding, during this time period, There are going to be remnant believers who will be overcomers. But notice the way they overcome. First of all, it is the blood of the Lamb. In other words, it's the fact that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life and they are born again by the Spirit of the living God because of faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross where he shed his blood as the ransom for all who will believe in him. That is the everlasting gospel, and that does not change. That's the same now before the tribulation begins. It's the same during the tribulation. It is the same. It is the one gospel. Paul even spoke about it this way, and he said, even if I or an angel from heaven, we're going to look at that a little bit more later on, but Paul made that declaration He said, even if I or an angel from heaven come to you preaching any other gospel, any other good news message other than Christ and him crucified, then you reject it. Let that person be anathema, accursed is what he was saying. So there is one gospel and there is one way of salvation and it is through believing in Jesus Christ Christ. And the work that he did on the cross for your salvation. His blood is enough. His blood is enough. Shed on the cross for the ransom for your sin and mine. He paid our debt. So this is saying that they were saved. They believed in the blood of Jesus because only the blood of Jesus gives us this power to overcome. It was Jesus through his death on the cross that disarmed and defeated Satan, ultimately. And we saw that in the last episode. We read those verses, but I'll refresh your memory. They are in they are found in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. The second thing that they used and that they overcame the enemy with is the word of their testimony. Now I want to us to look at that a minute. This is in other words, it's their testimony self-same, their own personal witness as evidence given, almost in a courtroom, of the Logos word of God. Notice we still have an illegal setting here, an illegal concept here. It's a courtroom setting. You've got, we talked about it in the last episode, you've got the prosecutor over here, and he keeps trying to accuse the brethren He keeps trying to throw up condemnation on them and throw up, oh yeah, oh yeah, they did this, even though he was the one that tempted them to do it. They were drawn away of their own lust, fell into sin, and so he's over here accusing, accusing, oh yeah, I saw them. I know they violated your law, just judge. God in heaven, they violated your law. Now, what are you going to do, so to speak? I mean, this is kind of. The, the idea of this prosecutor trying to accuse the brethren. And so you've got this defendant here, which is, it could be you or me or whoever. It's the, that defendant at that time, that person that has been saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. And now when they speak on their own behalf, they are giving evidence to the word of God. They are giving evidence through their testimony as a witness on a witness stand would do. For instance, let's just take some example. Let's say the prosecutor is going to accuse them for some form of sin or failure. It could be something that we might call a big sin. It could be something small, but he's got something in there. And, you know, he comes in and he's trying to argue and accuse before God the judge and the defendant comes in, and their argument is, I I did that, but I confessed my sin before you, God. I asked you to forgive me, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from my sin. And I believe your word, for you said in 1 John 1, 9, this is evidence of your word. You said that if we confess our sin, You are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that sinner then, that defendant, that believer who fell into sin that the devil is trying to accuse comes back and says, I believe your word. I give evidence. I give testimony to your word. And the defense attorney that we read about in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 and 2, yesterday, also might speak up. Maybe he speaks up. Maybe he says, yes, your honor, she did, and I forgave her. My blood cleanses her from all of her sins. And he pleads, based on the legality of God's word, for it is written. Maybe he says, it is written, if They confess their sins. You are faithful and just to forgive them of their sins. Maybe he gives this testimony also to the written word of God. Remember when he was attacked by Satan himself in the wilderness, in the temptation days recorded for us in Matthew 4, for instance. Jesus' weapon against Satan was this. It is written. Why is that so important? Why is that so important? Let's read a couple of scriptures that will help us understand it. In Esther chapter 8 and verse 8, it says this. Artaxerxes is speaking here and he says this. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. God binds himself to his word. It is written, he is the king of the universe. He is the king, omnipotent. The king eternal, Paul told Timothy. He is the king, and the king has written his word, and it is written in his name, sealed with his Holy Spirit, and no one can revoke it. It is absolutely certain, and that's one reason Jesus would use that against the devil and say, it is written, and then he gave the devil a, a Rama word. He quoted a Rama word, that was the weapon of the moment that he needed to defeat Satan with that one blow. The Bible tells us in Ephesians that the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. That word for word is the Rama. It means that 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 specific word God gives in that moment that is the weapon. be used, and we see it operating in Jesus' life, in his own temptation in the wilderness by the devil in Matthew chapter 4 and in the other gospels. I want to also look at Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 4. It says this, where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? In other words, the king speaks, makes a decree, and it's as good as done. It will be upheld. It cannot be revoked. It cannot be annulled. It cannot be overturned. God binds himself to his own word because he has chosen to do so. And we have the proof because Jesus himself verifies it when he says it is written. It's written in the king's name, cannot be revoked or annulled. And so we simply give testimony. As Christians today, we can draw this application. But even then, they will give evidentiary testimony to the word of God They will supply evidence from their own lives, from their own experiences, from the truth of the word. They'll be able to stand there, so to speak, as if they were on a witness stand before a judge and say, God is faithful. I know Him to be faithful because He did this and this and this for me, and He faithfully kept me all of those years, all of these years so far. God saves. I know He saves because He saved me. He made me a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. God delivers. I know he delivers because he delivered me and broke off all addictions and bondages from my life. God heals. I know he's a healer because he healed me. Just like he said in his word, I am the Lord who heals you. I know God is good. I've tasted and seen the Lord is good. I know he's good. So you see, We're giving testimony, evidence given through our own experiences to the very truth that is found in the Word of God. And we see one evidence of that. There are many in the scriptures, but I just want to point out one. In Psalm chapter 37, in Psalm chapter 37, David is writing here and he says this in verse 25. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. This is that kind of evidentiary testimony that they will give of their own words that will concur with the proof and truth of the word of the living God. The written logos. David gives us an example here. I personally can testify. I've been young, I've been old now, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. None of his descendants begging bread. So this is what that is talking about. They overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb, first because they're born again of the spirit of God and have the blood applied to them. Their name's written in the Lamb's book of life because they've been justified by faith alone. And then they give the word of their testimony. Notice also it says, also they died to themselves. They in essence became walking dead men, so to speak, or walking dead women, so to speak. They did not love their life even to the death. They were willing to suffer they were willing to die. They were willing to be martyred. I want to read a few places in Scripture. I want to begin with the first one in Acts chapter 5, because we see this lived out in the, in the lives of the apostles. And I want us to look at a couple of examples of that and then see what Jesus taught them and had to say about it. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, it says this, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Here we have Peter and the apostles, and they've been brought before the council because they're upset with them because they're preaching about Jesus and his death and resurrection, and several people are getting saved, and the council doesn't like it. And so they brought him before the council and were trying to charge them. And so they brought some punishment to the disciples and then said, you know, you ain't supposed to talk about this anymore. They told them that. And yet the disciples leave there. And it says that they were rejoicing, rejoicing, because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. This is Peter and the early apostles. Then in Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, I want to read verses 22 through 24. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying, "...that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." This is Paul speaking here to the Ephesian elders. And he's telling them, I'm about to, I'm going bound. There's there's a, a burden in my spirit. I have to go to Jerusalem. And he says, yet I realize that I'm going bound and that, that there are troubles and tribulations, chains awaiting me there when I get there. It's been testified. And yet I'm going. Nothing's going to stop me. Nothing's going to deter me because I am I've died to myself. My life is not dear to me anymore. I just want to please the Lord. I want to finish my course and I want to fulfill my ministry. That's what Paul is saying. And he says, no matter what, I'm dead to myself and alive to God. Just like he wrote about in Romans chapter 6. Jesus spoke words for us in Matthew chapter 16 on this very subject and jesus did not mince words he didn't give you just the fluffy flattery oh come to me and believe in me and your life's going to be beautiful and you'll have great houses and lands and i'll pour out money on you and and you will be you'll be known in the earth and everybody's going to praise you and all of that jesus didn't tell him any of that he didn't say that at all listen to what Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 says. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Jesus makes it very plain here that I'm calling you to a life of discipleship and there's a cost to that. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't use some flattery, phony promises. He says, you want to come and be my disciple? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me and then you will be my disciple. And then he promises Just go ahead and lose your life, because if you want to come after me, you need to lose your life. Die to yourself. Deny yourself. Be willing to die if it's necessary for my name's sake. And don't worry, because I'm going to reward you in the end. I will come back. And at the appropriate time, I'm going to give you a reward. So Jesus made it very plain that there is a cost to discipleship. And each person must be willing to answer this question, is he worth it all? Have you died to yourself? Are you denying yourself? Have you become a willing, living sacrifice like Paul spoke about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1? Is he worth everything to you? I pray he is. I pray he is worth everything, every sacrifice, every suffering. He's worth it, and he will reward us when we are found faithful to him as his disciple. Verse 12 in chapter 12 of Revelation shows us that there's a party in heaven when the devil is cast out for good. This is that time when he'll have no more access not even to ever accuse again. He can't come back. He can't come back to God's courtroom ever again. He can't accuse ever again. He is cast out for good and heaven is told to rejoice. But notice there is a starkly different response that is proclaimed to the earth At this middle point of the tribulation, when the devil is cast out and headed to them. This response proclaimed says, Woe to the earth and to the sea, to those who are living on the earth at that time and to the sea. In other words, it's really, 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 really bad. Beware, alas, because here he comes to those living on the earth. Notice this would include the what Revelation calls the earth dwellers or those who are in total rebellion and rejection against Jesus Christ. It would include perhaps some tribulation saints at that time, those who are in this category of overcoming the devil in verse 11. It would also include the remnant Jews that we just read about a few verses earlier that are told that they're going to be fleeing to the wilderness. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. But notice also it says to those who dwell in the sea. Now, I don't know if this is talking about people like on ships, merchant ships, etc., or if it means the sea creatures themselves, or perhaps both. But it, but the reason that this warning and this woe is decreed Is because the devil is on his way to earth now, once and for all, knowing he cannot come back to heaven, even to accuse. He has no more access to heaven. He is really, really, really mad. He is enraged. Now, people try to paint the devil as some, you know, red dude with a pitchfork or whatever, and that's all craziness. That's, that's wrong. But he might be purely red at this point because he is filled with rage. His plots have been foiled against the woman and her child. His access is now denied in heaven permanently, and the Bible says he knows that he, his time remaining is short. That means that he has only got a puny little bit of time left, a very brief little bit of time left. He knows now his time is short. How does he know that? Well, he's read the book. He knows the word of God. He's read it. He even tried to quote it and, of course, misquoted it. He's going to always distort it. He's going to always misquote any scripture but he knows the scripture. He knows what the word of God says. And so he knows now that his kairos time, his set or appointed time is now coming to a fast end. He's got a very brief puny amount of time left to do all of his evil intents that he wants to do in the earth and in the earth dwellers. The clock is ticking and the buzzer is going to be sounding soon, and he knows it, and he is filled with rage. He will have no mercy now. He's going to pull out all the stops because he is enraged, and literally speaking, all hell will come to earth at that point. It's not going to be pretty, and beloved friend, you don't want to be here when these things begin to unravel. I beg you, to come to Jesus now. Come to Jesus now. Become one of those that are saved prior to the rapture of the church and won't even have to see these things. You will have some opportunity after the rapture to be saved, yes, but it will be much harder then. There will be great deception, there will be persecution left and right. It will be much harder then. Come to him now, come to him now during this age of grace, we might call it. During this time when the spirit of the Lord might be wooing you, come to him now and be saved today. Because at this point where we are in Revelation, when the devil comes down, he is enraged, filled with great wrath and it will never be pretty again. He knows he has a puny amount of time left, And he will have no mercy. I pray that you will receive this word with the humility and godly intent that I've sought to deliver it to you. Because Jesus wants you to know him. And Jesus wants you to be ready to go when the Lord comes back. And then you won't be here for this event. I pray that this is a blessing to you. And the Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes. God bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.